Hello, Belabored fans, and welcome to episode 28 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. I am your host, as always, Sarah Jaffe, and uh, this week I have with me Jacobin editor, and uh, in the name of full disclosure, my boyfriend, Peter Fraze. We will have Michelle Chen back with us next week, but for now, I am... uh, dragging Peter in because he wrote some things this week about the BART strike, about which much more later with our guest, uh, Nation and Guardian contributor Susie Cagle. Uh, But for now, as longtime listeners will know, 28-week listeners will know, we always start off with a little bit of news this week. So, Peter, what else have you been watching in labor news that isn't BART strikes? Well, Sarah, I'm going to start by uh, talking my own book, as they say in banking, and recommending uh, an online article that we just published over at Jacobin, at uh, jacobinmag.com, which is an article about some college football players at Grambling State University going on strike. Grambling State is a historically black college in Louisiana, and recently the players there walked out of practice. Uh, And of course, this wouldn't be a strike about wages since these players are not even recognized as workers, even though they are full-time football players since they are college athletes. But it was a strike about things like having to buy your own Gatorade, working on old dilapidated equipment, having to drink water from a fire hose under the bleachers, all because of budget cuts that were going on there. So they walked out and said, we're not practicing anymore. So Brendan O'Connor over at Jacobin had an article where he describes this. And the end game of this particular strike is the players did uh, go back to practice and promised to finish the season and apparently got some promises of getting updated equipment. Uh, And we'll see how that plays out in the future, but I think it's a really interesting story because you're seeing college athletes taking labor action, which is obviously something that's going to have to happen if, if they're to be seen as workers potentially deserving of a wage at some point in the future. So this week, among many other things that are happening, what's going on in Detroit is of particular interest to labor people around the country, I think. Um, We spoke on episode 16 of Belabored with Michigan-based journalist Marcy Wheeler about the bankruptcy filing for the city of Detroit. And so what's happening right now is that the court case that has been filed by unions and retirees is, well, they are calling potentially Governor Rick Snyder to the stand. What's going on is that the city wants to, in addition to wiping out various other kinds of debts and obligations, wipe out its obligations to its workers in the form of pensions. And so the UAW, which represents some of the city workers, has subpoenaed the governor because the governor is the one who put in place this lovely emergency manager law and thus put in the emergency manager, whose name is Kevin Orr, um, you may remember from episode 16, who then filed for bankruptcy on behalf of the city of Detroit. These emergency managers, technically they're emergency financial managers, but essentially they sort of come in, take the place of any elected officials in these cities and towns in in Michigan that this has happened to, and then get to do things like wipe out the obligations to union workers, invalidate union contracts, all sorts of fun things. So it's really, among other things, stealth union busting. Among many other things, there's also, of course, much to talk about in terms of the race relations between Detroit and the rest of the state, and what putting an emergency manager in charge of a large population center of mostly black working class people says about, well, the governor's priorities. But again, you can listen to episode 16 for a long conversation about this. Right now, at issue is that the 
bankruptcy judge could in fact invalidate the emergency manager law, which was in fact invalidated by the voters of the state of Michigan in a referendum, but the state government stuck a new version back in place and tied in some funding to make it an appropriations bill, thus making it referendum proof. So we will be watching this with much interest, mostly if you actually do wipe out the emergency manager law, then that would have an impact on cities across Michigan. If the city is allowed to wipe out its obligations to its workers, that will have impact on cities and workers across the country. So the second thing I wanted to highlight is a story that falls under the heading of what I'd call solidarity with Americans. Uh, as Americans, we often have the unfortunate tendency to think that we have the right and duty to solve all the world's problems, but that there's nothing that the rest of the world could teach us. But the story that I'm highlighting is a story of some South African unionists coming to Mississippi to a Nissan plant to help the workers who are organizing there. The story is at the People's World, which is the site of the Communist Party USA. Oh, hell yeah. Which you should read, uh, not just because the Communist Party USA, which, well, it sounds exciting and scary actually probably isn't much different than a bunch of liberal democrats at this point but they actually do labor reporting unlike most other people and you can actually get find some good labor reporting including this story about this visit from a delegation of south african union leaders uh, meeting with these workers in mississippi and it's it's a story that reminded me of a couple other examples like this that have happened in the last couple of years of union leaders and activists from other countries working in solidarity with workers here because Although, of course, organized labor is under attack everywhere, but there still are places in the world where it's considerably stronger than it is in the United States and has more influence over uh, companies and over governments than unions often do here. So a couple of years ago, there was an example of an IKEA factory in Virginia where the Swedish woodworkers came over in solidarity, and in fact, there's good reason to think that it was pressure put on IKEA corporate back in Sweden that eventually got them to ease up and allow the union organizing campaign to proceed there. More recently, there was a story about a Volkswagen plant in Tennessee where IG Metall, the big German union, uh, was pushing to, for the UAW to be allowed to organize that plant. And in fact, in that case, IG Metall has quite a bit of pull with Volkswagen because the way that the German labor relationships system works is that unions actually have seats on the board, they have positions within the corporate governance structure, so IG Metall is in a much better position to push for unionization than the UAW might, particularly in a state like Tennessee. So yeah, go to the people's world and check out this this story. It's a kind of a feel-good story, and it's also, I think, a good example of what international labor solidarity means right now. And workers on the board of the... Uh company sounds a little bit like maybe taking a little bit of ownership over the means of production, speaking of the Communist Party. So the, another thing that I am watching this week, and I should say that this week I have been reporting a hellishly long story on the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, and so I got some help in what I on the labor news department from my lovely, lovely Twitter followers. Thank you all very, very much. One of the stories that caught my eye that somebody sent me via Twitter was a story of a not strike, a strike narrowly averted in Washington state. 
a tentative agreement with national grocery chain Safeway, QFC, Albertsons, and Fred Mayer, or Meyer, I'm not really sure. I don't know from that grocery store chain. Maybe somebody from that area of the country can fill me in if I'm pronouncing it correctly. In any case, about 21,000 workers who are organized with the United Food and Commercial Workers and the Teamsters were possibly going to go on strike. But with two hours to go on their 72-hour strike notice, they did in fact get a deal which the workers are going to be voting to ratify. This is interesting to me because I've written a lot and we've talked a lot on this podcast about Walmart and the impact that Walmart has had on Walmart's own workers. But one of the things, one of the big areas of impact that Walmart has had around the country is also on unionized grocery store workers, right? That in many places, including right here in New York, we shop at a nice unionized grocery store, that these were decent union jobs. And as soon as Walmart, especially these Walmart super centers where you can actually go grocery store shopping at Walmart, come into the neighborhood, there's immediate pressure on the grocery stores that already exist to cut costs. And the first place that they cut costs, just like the first place that pretty much everybody wants to cut costs, is on the backs of their workers. So it's interesting to see and to be hopeful about labor militancy in these unionized grocery stores especially if we're seeing workers also putting pressure on Walmart. You know, we're talking about industry-wide and also sort of sector-wide pressures, right? We need pressures on all sorts of low-wage employers in order to actually change the way these things do business. Otherwise, there's always going to be somebody who's willing to pay less. In any case, congratulations to the almost strikers and... On that note, we're going to talk about a strike that did indeed happen with, as I mentioned, Bay Area journalist, friend of the podcast, former ARG I Wish I'd Written That recipient, Susie Cagle. We have with us Susie Cagle, who is an independent journalist in the Bay Area. You probably should follow her on Twitter at Susie underscore C. And Susie has been on top of all of the labor conflict in the Bay Area this week. So, Susie, what happened with the port truck drivers this week in Oakland? Uh, this week, the port truck drivers actually self-organized. Um, a lot of them are part of the association here, not a union, an association. Uh, and organized to create a, a wildcat strike on Monday and Tuesday at the port. And they stopped work for a few hours at a time and were pretty successful. And the most interesting thing uh, to me was on Tuesday, um, the ILWU, Longshoremen Union here, Local mm -hmm. 10, was uh, very active in crossing their wildcat picket line. Um, ILWU has a long history of radical action, yeah. and they did not show a lot of solidarity. I should say the leadership of ILWU, who, who crossed that line, did not show a lot of solidarity for those truckers. Not only did they cross the line, most of the workers crossed the line um, at the behest of the local uh, local 10 president um, and, and the representative, yeah. but there was a lot of uh, a lot of weird kind of class animosity between the longshoremen and the, the truckers. And, you know, this goes back a while. They have a history of animosity there. The truckers mm -hmm. are not treated very well at the port. But, you know, this kind of idea of uh, we're in a union and you're not. And, uh, and that was what the, the uh, longshoremen were saying. And that was, I think that came uh, as a surprise to a lot of people. 
Yeah, we've talked about the port truckers in other cities on the podcast in the past, and the way that they get, or one of the many ways that they get screwed is that they're legally classified as independent contractors, so they don't actually have the right to form a union. But I've got to go ahead and quote Newsies here, because everybody loves Newsies, right? Which, like, if you strike, then we're a union, right? That, like, this idea of how else do they get to be in a union is a very complicated question. Tell us about what the specific demands and the specific conflict was that led the workers to go on strike this week. You know, they haven't received a wage increase in 10 years, uh, and their cost of fuel is now more than twice what it was then. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what this is about. They're verbally abused all the time. They can't use their phones while they're in their trucks. They can't have access to the bathrooms at Mm -hmm. the port. But that wasn't even what this was all about. You know, the driving force behind a lot of this was this new uh, green emission standards that are going into effect at the Port of Oakland. Mm -hmm. These are green emission standards that are just specific to the Port of Oakland. They're a much higher standard. The pollution there is awful. I mean, just just walking around and breathing in the air for several hours, you're going to feel the effects of that immediately. And the port is really close to a lot of um, a lot of low-income neighborhoods. Right. It really immediately affects people there. But these standards are going into effect, arguably very good, except that the cost of those standards, the cost of upgrading the trucks and adding those, those necessary filters is going directly to all of these truckers who... Right. Uh, have big loans out on their trucks. They own their trucks, yeah. or they're they're uh, you know leasing them, and there's no support for them to be able to pay those necessary upgrade fees. Um, and those new rules are going to into effect on January first. Yeah. So as of January first, th- we're talking about hundreds of truckers. A lot of them very local, live in Oakland, live in West Oakland right. by the port, being affected by the pollution themselves, right. uh, being affected by the pollution when they're in their trucks, they're going to have to pay, and they don't have that kind of money. They can't do it, which means they're going to automatically be out of a job on January 1st. Right. Yeah, and I mean, we're seeing this kind of action in many places. I know when I I talked to the port truckers from Savannah before, that the sitting there in their trucks all day in these sort of bottlenecky lines waiting to get a container, and they get paid by the load, not by the hour... Mm-hmm. So they're sitting there, not getting paid, breathing in the fumes from their own truck, trying to save gas so they don't have the air conditioner on, so then you've got the window open, so you're definitely breathing it in. Like, the, the first people facing the impact of the pollution are actually really the drivers. Which is what makes it amazing to me to hear uh, you know, local environmentalists say, to blame them so directly yeah. without any acknowledgement of the fact that this is a system that's been set up in order to make them seem responsible. Sure, they're driving the truck, they own the truck, but yeah. they're not, that you can't, that's not how blame works. That's yeah. not how systems work. Right. So I'm curious, one thing I was curious about is, you talked about the sort of hostile reaction that the Longshore Workers Union had toward the Wildcat strike. Do you have any sort of thoughts about what drives that? If is it just a matter of the people sort of thinking, well, I've got mine, and so they're not being interested in solidarity, or is there more? Is there more to it than that in terms of the sort of sociology of the port? I would even 
say that that's not even specific to the sociology of the port. I think that that's uh, really a kind of perspective in all of the way that we're thinking about labor everywhere, especially in the Bay Area. Yeah. But I think that the ILWU situation is a little bit more specific. You know, they fear potential, you know, a court ruling mm-hmm. that, you know, if they um, if their arbitrator says that it's safe for them to work, they can appeal that. But if they still don't go to work uh, and and they don't appeal it, they could be fined. But the fact that it turned into this kind of like cultural situation where they're saying like you're we're in a union and you're not, you can't do that. I think that that points to a lot of bigger kind of perspectives that we're seeing kind of across the board right now. And just for background, right, you reported before on the last time that a union in this case, shut down the port that was with the ILWU, Mm -hmm. um, and I think Occupy Oakland was involved, right? They actually did two port shutdowns on November and December of 2011, and both of those were really specifically on the behalf of the ILWU, and... Uh, and and with uh, I should say not just on behalf but uh, with partnership with ILWU there um, and at the time you know there was a a little bit of talk about the conditions for truckers um, but that actually became a really divisive issue at the time yeah uh, and I had a lot of criticisms of it why are why stand up for the the people who are actually making decent wages and are unionized. That's not to say that they don't have to still fight for their rights here, but why them and not these guys who aren't in a union, they're independent contractors, they can't use bathrooms, they're getting screwed over every fucking day. Why is it just the union and not these independent contractors? And there were definitely a lot of people who were bringing up these issues, um, who reached out to the truckers at the time. But I have to say there were also people who were main organizers who were telling me, we don't, this isn't about the truckers. We don't care about them. That's not what this is about this time. And I, I, that left a really bad taste in my mouth personally, because I think that these issues of independent contractors really fall by the wayside when, if our conversation about labor is just about established unions, um, we, we're not going to have, be having this conversation for very lo- much longer. Yeah. No, it really is a, an ongoing issue, obviously, for labor. And the broader conversation these days obviously acknowledges that unions are doomed if they are seen as being narrowly focused on their members' self-interest. But, yeah, when you still see it happening, even though that's sort of widely acknowledged, it's it's fairly depressing. Yeah, and it's, stuff like this strike is the, exactly where labor probably needs to be looking to find new sources of strength, you know? Yeah. Labor needs what our uh, friends in Silicon Valley call some disruptive innovation, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, like, we're, and, you know, and we're seeing, like I said, we're seeing action. The port truckers in Los Angeles have had action, the port truckers in Savannah. Um, I was just watching a wonderful video that I will link on the Dissent website that um, the port truckers went to the, city, the Savannah City Council meeting and sort of, you know, disrupted, speaking of disrupting, the meeting to bring their issues in front of the the greater public. And like, that's the kind of organizing that we're seeing in some unions these days that are doing broader community outreach, but also in these non-union worker formations like the fast food strikes, like some of these port trucker actions that really we need more of, right? We need to actually be really thinking outside of the existing format. And so speaking of that and speaking of tech bros, there was another work stoppage, a rather more well-covered one in the Bay Area in the last couple of weeks, 
And again, we sort of saw a lot of questions of solidarity arising around the BART strike. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't, I, I saw a lot of questions about horror. <laughs> it's, it's funny to me that people still perceive of the Bay Area as a politically progressive place. Even after the response to the BART strike, people still yeah. seem to have it in their heads that this is a this is a place of progressive politics. And I think that that age of the of Bay Area is, is long dead, um, <laughs> as, as I think that we all saw. And we, you know, we saw it, this wasn't the first time we saw it, we saw it when the BART uh, was also on strike in July. So I thought it was it's a little interesting to me living here and being in it and seeing people who I think think of themselves as progressive in a lot of areas of their lives saying screw these workers yeah. they make more money than I do yeah right well and it seems like the Bay Area increasingly specializes in the variety of liberalism that's non-threatening to rich people so things like imposing you know regulations on vehicle emissions without paying for them are okay, but anything that involves, you know, having to give up some money or privilege is not. Exactly. I mean, I think that that both the Port Trucker issue and the BART strike are really revealing the actual full scope of the politics here and how uh, in flux and strange they are. We, you know, we want a cleaner environment. We don't need to look at who has to pay for that. We want transit first. We don't want all of these dirty cars and we don't want to think about who has to pay for that. Right. But, I mean, that's interesting. Um, I used one of your pieces as my ARG, I wish I'd written that, where you talked about the Google bus and the sort of politics of the Google bus and the way that that kind of transit actually serves to really separate a certain class of worker from the rest of the Bay Area. Exactly. Um, And, you know, it was funny to me to see a lot of this animosity and, and really kind of violent rage coming from the tech sector about the BART strike, because BART doesn't even reach where a lot of these tech companies are. People were complaining about not being able to get to San Mateo. You can't ride BART to San Mateo. And these tech companies are in these places that don't have a lot of readily available transportation. So it's especially amusing to me, in a lot of ways, when they're complaining about government infrastructure, public infrastructure not serving them, when they're in places where they've decided they don't want to deal with that kind of infrastructure, and they want to create their own shadow transit systems that are, again, not dealing with that infrastructure, not investing in that infrastructure. Yeah, and I I think one of the things that got a lot more attention as a result of the strike was just how kind of out there and delusional some of these libertarian tech people are with their fantasies of totally seceding from government, seceding from society, you know, on, on their island platforms or whatever. Seceding, don't forget yeah. seceding. Uh, and, you know, which became sort of darkly comic when it was counterposed with them complaining about a public transit agency being shut down. That's, that's life here. I mean, it's, I mean, personally, I, I was really impressed to see how people conflated all of these issues with uh, environmentalism. And that's a lot of the people who talk about, you know, we need more car sharing and we need more, um, you know, the Google buses aren't all that bad. Oh, yeah, it is private transit, but it's not all that bad because it takes all these cars off the road. And no acknowledgement of what the give and take there is and what we're building and what kind of future we're creating. San Francisco has, has long been pretty hostile to increasing bike lanes around the city. Right. At the same time, they're letting these buses kind of run wild. Right. There are a lot of things that are readily available infrastructure improvements.
improvements that we could make that would make things easier for people. Um, and it's just not happening. There's not the will there. Yeah. But there will be lift, a lift car on every corner right. driven by a person who's making $10 an hour at right. this point yeah. at best. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because things like bike lanes could potentially help working class people who can't maybe afford a car, but could afford a bike, can't necessarily afford to pay whatever you have to pay to take a Lyft car. I don't know much other about Lyft other than they have pink mustaches on the cars, but the question of environmentalism and access is a really interesting one that I think doesn't get parsed out much in these conversations. Well, and it was actually interesting for me to see that um, there's a big op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle, a unionized newspaper, yep. it should be noted, that was pushing for um, banning future BART strikes, right. kind of on principle. The main thesis of it was the Bay Area is a transit-first place. Right. And, you know, that sounds really nice, but this place runs on California car culture. Right. It is low-rise as far as the eye can see. Yes. yes, San Francisco has some tall buildings now. It doesn't have many. People here don't like density. They want single-family homes, and they want their cars because the transit, you know, BART, BART is very important. It does uh, transport a lot of commuters into the city. But it is nothing compared to the New York subway system, to Washington, D.C., to all of these other transit systems that uh, this author and other people have compared BART to to make the point of there are cities where uh, strikes are blatantly illegal or they are they're restricted in a lot of ways right. um, because those transit systems are so you know completely tied to the local economy and they really do transport that many people. Right. BART, just, it just doesn't. And that's not to say that a lot of people don't ride it every day. Right. Every day, they absolutely do. But it is absolutely not the same kind of ridership in uh, in regards to comparing to the, this population as in these other cities. And it seems really, uh, really disingenuous to make that kind of direct comparison. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think it was Allison Kilkenny who tweeted that you know people always complain about you know, unions doing, or people always say they'd, they'd support the union if they just didn't do the one thing that actually gives them power, right? Like, if you take away their right to strike once again, what is the union if it has no right to actually take action on its own behalf? What can they really do without that power? The thing that gives them the most power is that people do, in fact, rely on them. Exactly. I mean, otherwise you're an association, which is very nice, and you have some sort of collective bargaining power, but uh, when it comes down to it, you really don't. Right. So the idea that um, this isn't union busting, I mean, this the, a lot of this is coming from a, a council member in Orinda, which is an East Bay suburb, kind of way out there, where the idea that this person who lives in this suburb, uh, who's a Democrat, and I've heard uh, relatively close to, to Governor Jerry Brown mm. is saying that uh, we, we're a transit-first region and this is about our principles of green building and green development yeah. and it's not about union busting. It was just uh, darkly comic. Yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing that this, and this is sort of what I wrote about the strike, was the way that people's perceptions of what's the union's role in having a you know, better functioning transit system because it got packaged into this kind of lazy narrative where unions stand for, you know, stagnation and hidebound work rules and all this stuff, unlike Silicon Valley, which stands for innovation and efficiency and whatnot. Even though when you really look into what the core of the dispute was about in the negotiations, 
it had to do exactly with technology and efficiency in the system consistent with not getting their workers killed, as happened to two workers during the strike while management was running the trains. Yeah, and I mean, I'm looking at, Mike Elk had a post at In These Times about the actual work rules that were under under dispute, and it was like, rules about like train operators being told mid-shift to leave the train and work as a janitor. Train operators being told to report to work at sites that they don't normally work at, people having their schedules changed with little to no notice, the kind of thing that like is essentially about power and control over your own life, but also about basically management's power and control over you, right? I can't imagine that if management has the right to tell the train operator to get off the train and go work as a janitor, that that's not going to be used as punishment, right? That that's not going to be used as another mechanism of control. And it's really interesting, and we should step back and say that the strike was settled, that they do have a contract now, and Susie, maybe you can tell us more of the details of that contract and how some of these rules got worked out. Uh, I, I don't know if I if I can tell you all of the specifics. Well, right, um, okay. I know that they got uh, at least some sort of wage increase and some agreement to some of these work rules. I think that a few of the newspapers have actually been reporting different things about how those work rules uh-huh. have been worked out. So I don't know how much exactly we know about all of those specifics. Yeah. Um, so what I thought was really interesting was seeing uh, that the tech community really come in here and their driving force behind their interests in the BART strike was, well, can't we just automate all of this? Can't we just get robots to do all of this for us? It would be so easy. And that's, and that's uh, you know, our area of expertise and we know how to do robots. Right. And it was funny to watch some of this play out in social media. A lot of this played out in social media. But uh, to watch these kind of back and forths with, between people who were saying, you know, well, this is just like the Industrial Revolution, and you can't blame people who make robots and people who want to automate these systems for destroying these workers' lives, potentially, you know, taking away their livelihoods, um, and having just no awareness about it's different if you make a cool invention to improve society or if you are making a cool invention specifically so that these workers won't have jobs anymore. That's, these are different ideas and different intentions, and that's kind of important. It's not that everyone who cares about workers in the Bay Area is a Luddite who hates technology. It's we don't want to create tools that are specifically about taking power away from individuals who have decent jobs. Right. And again, it's, I mean, it sort of ties back to what we were talking about with the poor truckers, which is that, you know, things like figuring out ways to automate trains and, you know, reducing carbon emissions are great things. But if you try to, if you do that without any concern for how that affects existing workers, that's what's politically problematic about it. Right. And like we, you know, I'm sure that a lot of those truckers would love to have lower polluting, lower emitting trucks and to do less grueling, miserable work. You know, they're not asking for no new green emission standards. They're asking for some money so that they're able to do that to their right. trucks so they can afford to do it. Right. And yeah. And when I thought interest was interesting in the bar strike, when I read the statements that the union was putting out, at one point they were sort of talking about how, you know, as it is, BART is running with fewer frontline workers than ever, right? So this idea that the union is somehow what's standing in the way of technological improvements of the system, like, was that wasn't even it, as we were just talking about. It was uses of work rules and of technology to, you know, manipulate and dehumanize the workers in various ways that has nothing really to do with making the trains run on time. 
No, and that's that's always the question, right? Is it are we working on these technological advances to actually make all of our lives better, or are we working on them because they give somebody else power and control? And I mean, you know, to some extent that can be baked into the technology when you make it. And I can get really media theory wonky here in a way that I'm sure belabored listeners probably don't care about. But it really will depend how the people who want to make the technology shape the technology, right? Yeah, and I think that there's a lot to fear about what's happening in the Bay Area right now. And I hope that uh, people are really paying close attention because I think that this is kind of a seat of, um, you know, there are those leftover progressive politics. People here do, they do genuinely care about improving the environment. And that's, you know, certainly a a really important thing that we need to do immediately uh, worldwide, but not to do it at the expense of others. And I think that what happens here uh, is going to be happening very soon in in lots of other cities. So thank you to Susie Cagle. We will put links to some of Susie's work on the Descent website, including the post that she wrote this week disproving the uh, claims that the Bay Area was going to be just completely hampered by not having access to BART for a few days. And now, as long-time 28-week listeners will know, it is the time of the podcast where I try to say ARG as well as Josh did and say, ARG! I wish I'd written that. So, Peter, what did you wish you'd written this week? Well, this pick is maybe going to seem a little bit out of left field for the listeners have belabored, but bear with me because I think it is a labor story in the broader sense. And it's a it's a post that was recently written by Isabella Kaminska over at the Financial Times. I'm one of those leftists who believes that uh, leftists can get a lot out of reading the bourgeois press and especially the business press. And Isabella Kaminska in particular is someone I really like because she writes about something that I also write a lot about, which is the impact of things like automation and 3D printing and the internet and other technologies on labor and on the future of labor and of the economy. And unlike most people who write on this stuff, she's fairly attentive to the issues of class and power in these discussions about the rise of the robots and so forth. So what she recently wrote was a post called World War ZERP, where ZERP stands for Zero Interest Rate Policy, which you wouldn't know unless you read a lot of weird financially wonky stuff. But she basically starts it off with this kind of funny story of an investment advisor who was known for giving these very kind of bearish apocalyptic predictions about upcoming economic crisis, but who put out an, a report where he was somewhat more optimistic about the economy and got all of these angry reactions from his subscribers who said, you know, why are you becoming a cheerleader and this isn't what I subscribed you for? And it sort of revealed that there were a lot of these people that weren't actually looking for accurate financial advice from this guy. They just wanted somebody to tell them that the apocalypse was coming. So Iza Kaminska then goes on to try and unpack what she calls the problem of apocalypse bias in the investment community today, uh, which to translate it into a little less financial timesy formulation would be basically the question of why would rich people be invested in the idea of sort of systemic social collapse? And this is part of a longer series she's been doing called Beyond Scarcity, which is about this problem or problem and opportunity of increasing material abundance made possible by technology. And I recommend you read that whole series. And in this part of it, she's talking about the way in which in a world of increasing material abundance, being 
really, really rich is primarily not about your absolute wealth, but about your relative wealth in the sense that there's no difference between being a billionaire and a trillionaire in terms of what materially you can buy for yourself. But there's a big difference in terms of the social power you have to control others, to influence governments, to influence institutions, and so forth. And so that, in some ways, the taste for crisis among a certain faction of the rich is a recognition that the surest way to preserve your relative social power as a rich person in a world of increasing abundance is a social crisis that immiserates all of the people below you. And so she says the instinctive reaction of those who wish to preserve their position on the social ladder is to wish for outright system collapse. And it's a more, it's a complex argument, and I encourage everybody to read it. And she's optimistic that there are forces at work that will prevent us from going all the way to total social system collapse. But, well, I hope she's right anyway. So in essence, she's making an argument about class power. Yeah. Which we might not talk about apocalypse bias or such terms on or ZERP that much on this podcast, but we certainly talk about class power a whole lot. So I am, you'll have to forgive me this week, I am cheating a little bit, but I am going to make it up to you by giving you one of my ultimate, my lifelong arg, I wish I'd written that pieces, which is a piece from several years ago by Chris Hayes. You may know him, you may watch his TV show now, but back in 2006, he was writing for In These Times magazine. And he wrote a piece called In Search of Solidarity. And I dug this piece out again this week because we were talking about transit strikes. And, of course, Chris was writing this piece in the aftermath of a New York City transit strike and talking about solidarity or the lack thereof that people might have with striking workers. So obviously you can see why I was reading this piece this week or rereading this piece for the probably hundredth time this week. And why I wanted to bring it up at the end of this conversation that you have just listened to, where we are talking about solidarity between union workers, between non-union workers and union workers, between the community and union workers. Um, While we're dealing with all of these questions, this, of course, is, is the perfect piece. And really... Chris tries to tease out what solidarity is, and I'm just going to, because part of what I love about this piece is the ideas behind it, part of what I love about this piece is simply how it's written. It's a very beautiful piece, and so I just want to read you a little bit of it. I hope Chris will forgive me. If we lose unions, we lose the concept of solidarity itself, and it's hard to imagine we won't become worse people for it. Right now, our politics are atomized and transactional. We send checks, we sign petitions, we forward articles. We buy sweat-free clothes, recycle, and look for vocations that don't collude too egregiously with evil. But we've unconsciously circumscribed the boundaries of political action. What is move-on's equivalent of a strike? As union membership and urban ethnic machines decline and the net roots, overwhelmingly white and affluent, comes to represent the progressive movement, the left is in danger of becoming, as Thomas Frank wrote in Le Monde Diplomatique, pardon my French accent, in February of 2004, a charity operation. That is, people in sympathy with the downtrodden, not the downtrodden themselves. As the American right offers that redundant canard moral values as its lodestar, the left should offer solidarity. Not retrograde brotherhood or faith-specific fellowship, but something more robust and difficult and rewarding. The uplift of collective enterprise. So, I will, of course, put links to that piece and all the pieces we've discussed today on the Descent Magazine website, 
We appreciate you very much once again sticking with us this week. Send us your suggestions, your ideas, guests you want us to talk to, terms you want us to explain. Tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And we will be back next week. I will be back, I believe, with the fabulous Michelle Chen. Until then, have a good week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, the fact, hell no, we can't go. A society.